0: It's the Todd Ortloff Show on News Radio KONP. Now, here's Todd. All right, welcome once again to the uh, program. going to spend the first half of the show today getting to know the new president at Peninsula College, and that uh, person is in the studio with us today. Susie Ames joins us. Susie, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming in.
1: It's so great to be here. Thank uh, you. I'm
0: hearing lots about uh, you're doing things like this, trying to get out into the community and uh, make a lot of campus visits. And of course, you know, it is in the middle of summer, so probably a good time for you to be doing that. But uh, uh, welcome to, uh, to Port Angeles, Peninsula College, and all of that. So I guess, first question for uh, everybody, how did, how did you end up? here. Kind of a little of your backstory.
1: Sure. So I've worked in the community and technical college system in Washington State for most of my career, more than 20 years. And I've really had my sights on being a college president in a small town where you are the college Mm -hmm. in the town, um, because I feel like there's just a tremendous opportunity to build relationships on the local one-on-one level and together... (laughs)
0: <laughs> look at you! Meet look at what we've done. You've uh, made me hit all sorts of buttons. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> that
1: wasn't me for the record. No, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> So really building connections um, at the local level for the greater community, and that's what community colleges are all about, and so I just couldn't be more thrilled to be here.
0: So you came from the Puget Sound area, basically. Uh, Tell us a bit about kind of what you did there and maybe how that helps incorporate into what you see you doing uh, in in your new position.
1: Yeah, I've worked at a variety of colleges up and down the I-5 corridor, um, which, again, made me long for coming (laughs) further out west, uh, getting out of the chaos and, and being in a. Environment where relationships can run deep. And so it worked in a variety of roles from marketing and communications, instruction. Um, really trying to create as much of a well-rounded background in myself so that when I did reach the pinnacle of being a college president, mm-hmm. I really felt like I had the vast toolbox that was going to prepare me for this big job.
0: All right. So um, you're coming in after you know, a pretty long-tenured president. Actually, it's been kind of the tradition here, long-tenured presidents at Peninsula College for the last three or so. Uh, just kind of your thoughts coming into that and uh, you know how you're going to approach the job now.
1: Yeah, Peninsula College is very unique to have the longevity of presidents. It's very normal for, at a small college, and we're one of the smallest, to have a lot of churn. You might mm-hmm. have a college president coming in for two, three, four years, and then they go off to the big guns. Well, I have no desire to ever be president of any other college other than Peninsula College. Wow, okay. Um, when uh, Trustee Mike Glenn signed my contract, I told him I would be uh, love to consider this my last job. And I'm only 49, so (laughs) (laughs) you can do the math. My husband and I plan on being here for the long haul. We are in the active process of moving, and we have said numerous times this will be our last home. And we are moving my mother over to a retirement home in PA, so we are going to get grounded in the community and... Uh, Peninsula College will be home for a long time. and
0: Yeah, so I did understand uh, that you do have a little bit of a tie here in the sense that you're going to be a little bit family-grounded as well into the community. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. My husband and I are very much looking forward to being entrenched in a small town and being really um, strong members of the community. My mother can't wait to um, also join that community as well. Um, so, yeah, the college and, and the Ames family will be embedded in the family, in the community, and we're really looking forward to that.
0: Well, welcome to all of you, then, uh, you. when you eventually finally get all moved over. We're very close. <laughs> so, um, you know, the role of a, of a community college, how do you – we all kind of see it differently, I guess, but as you look at Peninsula College, where, where do you see it uh, as it fits in as a community college?
1: Yeah, so in my vision, the college is at the heart of the community. And community members across the spectrum see us as the place where we change lives. They can come to change their lives. Once you get and realize the power of higher education, you not only change your life, but you change your family's lives for generations to come. And that is the power of higher education. And it doesn't happen more profoundly anywhere else than at a community college where you can um, come in to get your GED, your high school diploma, you can get your transfer degree, you can earn a very high living, level wage job, gaining a trade skill. And earning a bachelor's degree, whether here in town at the college or transferring elsewhere. So not many other higher education institutions other than community colleges Mm -hmm. can say that they reach people no matter what level they're at and get them to their goals.
0: You know, one of the things I know your predecessor tried to get this going as well. And it's one of the missions, I think, of community colleges is trying to find out what the job needs are in a community. Um, How do you see doing that to to make sure that there are, because quite frankly, I mean, Port Angeles, Squim area might have some specific needs to fill jobs.
1: Yeah. So meeting the local workforce needs Mm -hmm. is the heart of what community colleges do when it comes to workforce education. So we have a phenomenal team in our workforce education um, crew at the Peninsula College campus. And our job is to get out into the community and Create that ongoing dialogue. So, just two weeks ago, we had some uh, Port, uh, Port Angeles executives um, on our campus, so we could start that conversation. We're um, doing the preliminary work now to start a maritime program. We meet. We're meeting regularly with the dentists, um, and they're bringing their needs to us for a dental hygiene program. Yeah. So that's in development. Um, We just now launched uh, a paralegal program and a media technician program. So these are all in direct. Uh, response to a local workforce. Uh,
0: yeah, obviously, employers have said, we need people that can do this.
1: Yeah, right. and then that's what we do. We turn around, and whether right. it's short-term training, I know you just had Brian Kniedel, yep. um on the air, uh, Work short-term training like that, where a company just needs to have a specific set of training for their current employees. We can do that to the broader range of just a whole new industry that's coming in and growing, and we'll provide the future workers.
0: So let's talk kind of about the other side of that too. Is that a lot of people go to a, a community college as the you know the the jump start, if you will, before they get to a four year school. Um, and then of course, Peninsula College does have some four year opportunities as well. But how is that, how do you see that right now? Because it seems like things are a bit not just here but in flux in general about the approach into four year schools, the expense. Yeah, we talk about uh, finances and some of these issues too. So, uh, I guess maybe this is a thirty thousand foot question for you about uh, the placement of a of a college bound student at Peninsula College, a university bound student.
1: University yeah. bound, yeah. So, I will tell you, I'm a product of transfer. Transfer mm-hmm. works. Um, it takes a little bit of extra effort from the student's perspective. Is just planning and making sure that you're taking the right classes. But the vast majority of our uh, uh, general education classes. are They, they all transfer um, and it's just a matter of keeping your sights of which university you want to go to. We have the uh, benefit in Washington State of the direct transfer agreement so all of our universities are all on board. They know what we offer, we know what they offer, and the, the pathway can be quite seamless. And really really cost effective
0: yeah that's Our, what i was getting to next is those two years at peninsula mm-hmm. college can save a tremendous amount of money
1: we are by far the most efficient effective way to get a four-year degree you can have small class sizes you can get to know your faculty member by the first name if you do want to go to university of washington like i did you don't have to be in kane hall with 500 other students you can take those same classes here and with 20 students Mm -hmm. and then you can go to the university when you're ready um, to major and specifically dive into those classes so it's a pathway that works Uh,
0: the uh so let's talk about enrollment in general that's been one of the issues peninsula college i think it's kind of all community colleges probably and universities for that matter kind of struggling with right now is getting people into the pandemic kind of has nuanced and changed all of that as well uh address that. Uh, Do you have any ideas about ways perhaps you can get Peninsula College back on the radar for folks to to enroll?
1: Yeah. So enrollment is up for fall quarter by 35% compared to last fall. So um, I do have this real sense that people are coming out of their COVID caves and they're really looking for the next thing and higher education is a perfect next thing. So we're seeing um, increased enrollment across the board with our classes. I think people are seeing fall quarter as, as a fresh start, and we're yeah. excited to be there for them.
0: One of the issues that I'm sure you were aware of was uh, foreign students, and that is a kind of a, a, a bugaboo, if you will, uh, as things are right now. Just your thoughts about that, because Peninsula College in the past has had a tremendous international student uh, program, but it kind of imploded by COVID, all these other things that happened in the world.
1: Yeah, it's true. And international education is still a focus for us. Um, We actually recruit a fair number of our student athletes um, from abroad, and that really hasn't slowed down. Um, They're in our... uh, on-campus dorms and they're um, playing their sports and they make a really vibrant aspect to our college it's just one aspect to a well-rounded enrollment management, and so international students are a really great part of that. And we think that will continue to grow in the future. Yeah. It was a lot of factors that went into a perfect storm that hit exactly. international enrollment yeah. across it's like the country. like how you get them
0: home, how you get them here, can they get home, can they not. <laughs> There's just a lot of things with that. Yeah. Uh, what is If you have to give the 30-second elevator speech, I like to talk about your, your new job and describing where you're working now. How do you How do you tell a stranger in an elevator about Peninsula College?
1: Mm -hmm. uh peninsula college is the best community and technical college in washington state we are in my mind um intimately entrenched in the community and that's what makes us so great we are the most beautiful campus in the system i've been to all all of the colleges um, and with the brick buildings and the clock tower and the Um, water fountains. It's just a really wonderful place just to visit. Um, And it is a college that really has an extremely high quality of education. Our professors are renowned in our field and they bring a phenomenal experience inside the classroom. So it's really a very unique place for a small town to have such a high esteemed institution.
0: All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. We'll uh, do another segment here with the uh, new president of Peninsula College, Susie Ames, who's uh, joining us in the studio today. We'll be back with more with her right after this.
2: This is the Todd Ortloff Show on News Radio
0: KONP. My guest is uh, Susie Ames. She's the new president at Peninsula College, and I'm glad to have her on board this afternoon here in the studio to talk a little bit about her and uh, her her new start she's a I i guess you're at the 1 month point right yes, <laughs> today's the 1st Today of it. august yes. right mm-hmm. um, so what uh, what are your priorities what have you been trying to do here in the in that you know last 4 or 5 weeks that you've been around
1: yeah i have a a lofty vision of infusing peninsula college into the community um, and through three primary ways one is really to raise, raise the awareness of that power of higher education and its ability to change people's lives. And the second is to open the campus to the community. There's so many people who haven't even Mm -hmm. stepped foot on campus to see how beautiful it is and what a wonderful place it is to just wander through the trails and sit by the uh, fountain and just feel that lovely environment. And then third is to really collaborate closely with community partners to make this whole peninsula region an even better place to live and work. And so a big part of that is creating this sense of welcoming and belonging that the college is there for the entire community.
0: The uh, uh, easier said than done, that's a lot of work, and, and I think a lot of it is kind of what I'm hearing you're doing is you've, uh, you're out visiting, I just really m- trying to meet as many
1: folks as you can. Yeah, absolutely, internally and externally. Yeah. Um, that's my goal for the year. I think it will take it'll take a year to really st- build those um the start of those re- deep relationships and i started them before i got the job during my interview process and haven't skipped a beat so i'm um, just thoroughly enjoy getting to know people learning more about the community i know there's a lot left to learn mm-hmm. and uh, just taking that one day at a time but enjoying it every step of the way
0: uh two-part question what do you see as the uh, you know, kind of the, the the best part about peninsula college as you see it now and maybe the biggest challenge as you see it right right now yeah
1: I think the best part are the employees. They are so dedicated to student success with equity at the forefront. It's really inspirational to talk to them every day. I think our biggest challenge as we grow out of the pandemic is really looking at the enrollment situation and particularly um, what do students want for the future? Do they wanna come to campus face-to-face? Do they want hybrid and come a couple times a week? Or do they wanna um, learn 100% online? And what's what are the pros and cons of that, and how do we set up our uh, offering so that it meets the broadest community possible?
0: Uh, An add-on to that question, when you talk to folks, uh, what do you say is, uh, aside from the beautiful campus there, uh, the uniqueness of Peninsula College, mm-hmm. if they ask you about Peninsula what what sets it apart?
1: Mm-hmm. I think in a small town, it's the high-quality faculty, and I think they're drawn to this community. Yeah. So we've had many, many doctorally prepared professors, and you don't necessarily find that at a community college, let alone at a community college in a small town. Uh, But Peninsula College attracts uh, faculty from all over the country who really want to be here, and they want to be a part of this community. And I think that's what sets, uh, in particular, our um, associate's transfer degree apart, is the high-quality faculty from that gen ed side, married with Um, really amazing technical faculty. Um, Whether you want to learn the latest in cybersecurity or advanced manufacturing and welding, we have the faculty mm-hmm. that make that happen.
0: Now certainly, you know, there's been some programs that have come and gone as of late, and I'm sure you're hearing about those things. It, it's, are things back on the table again? To, if you hear like there's a real all of a sudden need to get a program that's gone away to come back, I mean, how open are you to doing that? And, and maybe you can explain from your perspective what it would take to, you know, I guess reinvigorate or reinvent, if you will, a, a program that might not have happened for a number of years.
1: Yeah, programs ebb and flow for a variety of right. reasons. Sometimes they're related to industry patterns, sometimes are just related to uh, staffing structures on campus so it's always important to keep a pulse on that and if you close a program still keep an eye on the industry so auto repair is a really good example so auto repair closed a few years ago our team is talking with the primarily the dealerships, so the ones that are most interested right now, it seems like. And they're interested in a little bit different program than we used to have. So a shorter-term certificate type program to get them into those auto shops quickly. And then the dealerships feel like they can help to refine the skills of those workers. So that's what we're working on standing up for. And and that was
0: exactly where I was getting at with the Mm -hmm. question is uh, when you bring these back, maybe they come back as a little bit nuanced, uh, maybe differently because times change.
1: Times change, technology changes, workforce needs change, and that's on us as a college to keep flexible.
0: You mentioned a couple of uh, programs you're working on right now that I think are really aimed at keeping people on the peninsula. Um, it's the good and the bad about where we're at. We're isolated for good reasons, and we're isolated, and it's kind of a bad thing, too. You mentioned di- dental hygienists. Uh, is one. I, I know some folks who've gone into that. They have to travel a tremendous distance to get a course to do that kind of work. Uh, they'd love to stay here if they could.
1: Yeah, and our dentists have made a very strong case for um, their interest in hiring. And livable wage jobs are core to our mission. You know, we probably won't start a cosmetology program, as an example, mm-hmm. because the wages just aren't there to support families, to, to be able to buy a house. And so if you're going to pay your ed- an education, we want to be able to assure that your salary yeah. at the end is going to be commensurate. So dental hygiene is a perfect example where you can... Uh, absolutely earn a livable wage job and get a skill and have that skill for the rest of your career
0: what is it is there a threshold for starting a program in your mind uh, when we talk about uh, the need for something does it have to be a dozen people a hundred people it, you know I think a lot of people may ask about i guess you call it a quota
1: Small towns are different for quotas than right. King County where I right. left, <laughs> or you might need to show you can bring in a hundred students well we're lucky if we can if there's a need for ten a year. We can, we can do 10 a year. We're looking at dental hygiene to be a good example, right? Yeah, it really just depends what the local need is. And if it's, if we're talking about manufacturing, for example, it may be two people per company, but collectively they make a need across an industry. And so how can we be flexible enough in what we teach to serve a variety of companies? Right. Our companies are small.
0: Yep, exactly. And right. So
1: we, we need to be flexible to meet each each of their needs.
0: So what do you do between now and when uh, the, the the next term starts uh, in September? What what does your schedule look like in the next six weeks or so?
1: Yeah. So my schedule is jam packed with uh, meetings with uh, employees one on one, getting to know each of them. I've invited each of them to my office to get to know me and me to get to know them. And then the same with the community. Our elected officials, our community leaders um, in the nonprofit sector and private sector and public sector as well.
0: All right. Lots of, uh, what? new shoes you'll probably need from all of the walking you're going to do, right? Don't,
1: don't tell my husband. <laughs>
0: all right, Susie Ames, thanks for coming in. Thank uh, you. It's great to meet you. We'll have you back, I'm certain of it, uh, because I think you're, a, you're an outreach kind of person, and our listeners will love to hear from the president of Peninsula College uh, often if we can. So, uh, congratulations on getting to the job of your dreams uh, and uh, getting into the community too, and good luck with the rest of your move.
1: Thank you so much.
0: All right, we're going to take a break, and uh, we'll be back with uh, more. We're going to talk about the North uh, Olympic Coast Marines Sanctuary, uh, when we come back right after this.
3: This is the Todd Ortloff Show on News Radio KONP.
0: We haven't talked about the uh, Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary in forever. In fact, uh, Kevin Grant hadn't been there I think the last time we probably talked about this and that's what we're going to chat about. Uh, Kevin is the sanctuary superintendent. Kevin thanks for coming in good to see you. Thanks for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it and uh, we also have County Commissioner Bill Peach here with us as well. Bill uh, certainly the sanctuary is out on the west end it does affect directly a lot of his district but also Bill uh, at one point in his career served on the board of the uh, of the uh, sanctuary too so he has some some insight both uh, in current day and in uh, past with this so Bill good to see you too. Thanks, thanks very in. much for having me. Uh, Uh, Kevin, let's just start with you. Just roundabout, you know, a lot lot of people may have seen the, you know, a logo or they've seen this word, but they really don't know what the sanctuary is. So uh, describe what
2: goes on off the coast here. Sure. Um, Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary is part of a national organization. The Office of National Marine Sanctuaries uh, is housed within NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, with fisheries and the Weather Service, etc. And the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries serves as a trustee for a, a network of underwater parks that encompasses more than 620,000 square miles. It's, it's quite big. Marine and Great Lakes, um, from Washington to Key West, from Lake Huron to American Samoa. Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary is one of the 15 National Marine Sanctuaries. Um, interestingly, the National Marine Sanctuaries Act itself the, our enabling legislation passed in 1972. Um, this year is our 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. So the program is, is celebrating that in, in a number of ways. Um, for all National Marine Sanctuaries, our, our primary objective is resource protection. Um, some National Marine Sanctuaries are set up for natural resources, coral reefs uh, off the coast here. It's a, it's a very productive upwelling system. Uh, Some are for maritime cultural heritage, like the Monitor of Monitor and Merrimack fame. That's a sanctuary, right? Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. That's correct. It's a National Marine Sanctuary. Um, But closely following that that resource protection uh, mandate is what we call compatible use. And so a lot of people hear the word sanctuary, and they think either I can't go there, or if I go there, we can't do anything or touch anything, Mm -hmm. and that's not the case with National Marine Sanctuaries. We want to actually encourage people to get out to these places. I mean, they're amazing uh, aquatic places that are worthy of national recognition, and we want people to get out and enjoy them. Uh, You can fish in every National Marine Sanctuary. Mm -hmm. There are certain areas in some sanctuaries that are are no-take preserves, if you will, Um, but we want people to get out there and see these areas and use them and enjoy them a bit of a misnomer the word sanctuary i think and maybe
0: not a misnomer but in our understanding as you just pointed out because we i think is uh, just in, lexi- in the modern lexicon we think as you mentioned uh, like a church i mean it's yes. like we can't mm, we have to be reverent and not do anything here whereas and i know for a fact i mean you guys do a lot of uh uh work with the fishing industry, for example, in in protecting resources there, but also protecting the resources in that they, people can still fish out there and and,
2: and uh, make a make a living. That that's exactly what the, what we want to do. I mean, I, I I personally grew up hunting and fishing. I love it. I, w- I want my kids and my grandkids to go out and be able to catch fish, um, and and part of that that's part of why I do mm-hmm. what I do
0: why is it good to have that sanctuary I, let's just talk specifically about the one we
2: know uh, you know what what what's unique about it and what you know what what would it be if you didn't have it here so olympic coast national marine sanctuary was designated in 1994 um next friday is our 28th anniversary um off the coast of washington uh... the way the oceanography the currents of the ocean work is every summer there's a huge upwelling so this really cool deep water gets pushed up close to shore and that water is full of nutrients and that brings algae blooms um, that brings then phytoplankton blooms uh, that get eaten by small critters that get eaten by larger critters that's why the whales migrate through here when they do and there's feeding it's an extremely productive area of the ocean, of, of the world. I mean, this, mm-hmm. is, this is a very ex- um, productive ecosystem. Um, it's, it's also rich in cultural resources. Um, there are over 200 documented shipwrecks within the sanctuary. But I think more importantly is the, the vibrant contemporary cultures of the whole the Makah, the Quileute tribes, and the Quinault Indian Nation; mm-hmm. um, those things together make Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary unique in, in in the entire world.
0: Describe, if you will, because certainly Olympic National Park is out on the coast. How that you know jives with your your jurisdiction, that jurisdiction, because there are some some boundary things there as well. But you know what happens once we get off the
2: coast? Sure, um, I believe. The National Park, Olympic National Park, has jurisdiction out to what what we call mean low water. So if you take the average of the low tides, that's kind of where their jurisdiction goes to. Our jurisdiction, we tried to make it as complicated and complex as possible. (laughs) (laughs) And so Well done. Over where we abut federal lands like the national park our jurisdiction goes to mean high water so there's this intertidal area (laughs) that is shared jurisdiction between olympic national park and olympic coast national Marine sanctuary however where the sanctuary abuts tribal lands our jurisdiction stops at that mean low water so we don't have the intertidal jurisdiction if you will when we uh, abut tribal lands
0: okay the um, tremendous amount of research has happened out in the Olympic Coast, and I and I remember a number of years ago seeing just some crazy uh, stuff that was found in the deep water out there. <laughs> Give us a little flavor of some of the things that have happened scientifically there, just to, in the in the Marine Sanctuary.
2: Oh, it, it's like I said, it's very very productive. A lot of the sanctuary, the bottom is not all that exciting mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of mud a lot of sandy areas the intertidal area is spectacular um, there's a fantastic world-class tide pooling out there um, and then you get into some of the deeper waters and the sanctuary encompasses about 3200 3188 square miles it goes from uh, just east of nia bay down to the Copalis River, and it stretches anywhere from 20 to 45 miles offshore. Mm-hmm. And that furthest offshore area also encompasses the heads of some major marine canyons. So Nitnat Canyon in the north and Wanda Fuqua Canyon, Quinault Canyon, those places are amazing. Uh, we were lucky enough to have the exploration vessel Nautilus uh, out a few times in the last few years, and that vessel has these remotely operated vehicles that can go down super deep and have cameras. But what's really cool is that they also have the ability to then broadcast that worldwide. And so I was lucky enough to be on one of these cruises, and we were getting questions from classrooms in Finland (laughs) and things like that. It, It was really cool. But while we were down there, there are amazing coral and glass sponge gardens, Uh, different types of octopus and things like that. It it was just, it literally was an exploration to to get human eyes on this place for the first time. And if I understand correctly, things were found that
0: you wouldn't expect to have seen there, from what I read.
2: There were were all sorts of amazing um, discoveries all up and down the West Coast by by this. Um, In California, they actually found what's called a whale fall so they just stumbled across the decomposing skeleton of a whale Mm -hmm. and the amount so there's not a lot of food in the super deep areas and so everything congregated around this and they got to see all sorts of cool stuff um in the sanctuaries up here there are um they're still identifying them but we're pretty sure we have at least three new species of deep water coral Mm. wow there's a lot of coral out there in yeah. the coast of Washington, which is kind of crazy. What is uh,
0: restricted? Um, I know there's some, some issues with, like with certain shipping and things have to try to steer clear of the sanctuary. So can you describe a little of that? And then the follow-up to that is you know, the things that you can't do in there. How, do, how does enforcement work with a marine sanctuary? It's a huge piece of ocean,
2: basically. That's a, that's a very good question. And so for things that are restricted, again, fishing is allowed. Um, there are certain areas uh, that were set up by our sister agency within, within NOAA, the National Marine Fisheries Service, uh, where there are maybe some trawl restrictions for essential fish habitat, things like that. But for the most part, you can fish anywhere in the sanctuary. Uh, one of the things I think nationwide that, that a lot of communities are being drawn to for the National Marine Sanctuaries is that we have the ability to prevent oil and gas um, in fact, we our regulations can prevent even exploring for mm-hmm. oil and gas, um, and and I think uh, in this climate that's that's an important aspect that people want to see. Uh, every time there's a deep water horizon, people think, "Gosh, I don't want that in my backyard," kind of thing. Um, as far as enforcement goes, we work very closely with the state of Washington and their enforcement officers. Uh, NOAA has its own Office of Law Enforcement, uh, federal agents. But there's not a lot of on-the-water presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me rephrase that. There's a, there's a good deal of on-the-water presence. But you can't be everywhere all at once because right. it's huge. Yep. <laughs> That's, hence
0: my question. It, I mean, it's, it's, chasing people that out there would be near impossible in some ways.
2: It, it would be a little bit more difficult. The, they are actually... They go about it in a very logical way. There are literally only two marinas in the sanctuary. One is the Macaw Marina, and one is in La Push. And the officers on things like fishing openers, things like that, Fourth of July, these holidays, Mm -hmm. they increase their presence on the water because that's when the most people are out there doing their thing. Uh, You had mentioned uh, certain vessels having to stay away from shore. right so that is called an area to be avoided it's a designation by the international maritime it, organization and it's on the charts i mean
0: essentially and that's a, and if i understand that that's kind of a coast guard issue that too as well right it
2: will be it, yeah. it's a coast guard uh the coast guard and and uh our office olympic coast national Marine sanctuary actually monitor that area uh we've got we've got a a couple people on our staff who are just wizards with that and put together reports, update a biannually and, and definitely an annual report that shows compliance. So it's quite literally a voluntary measure. Right. Um, nobody's going to get any sort of enforcement action against them. But most of the vessels are very respectful when they get a letter from the U.S. Coast Guard in the sanctuary saying, Hey, we noticed that on this date, you were only five miles from shore in a tanker. You know, you're not <laughs> yeah. you're not really supposed to do that, and and um that type of compliance, just the, those kind of letters um, tend to do, to to be effective, and and for the most part, the maritime industry is is very respectful mm-hmm. of of that area. Do I need a permit if I was doing
0: research or or, or anything like that? I mean, I'm, and I'm I'm thinking maybe somebody wants to go dive some
2: parts out there or something like that. What, what what's the protocol? So diving. Knock yourself out. Go have fun okay. and be safe because there's some pretty good currents out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you're going to discharge anything, if you're going to put a, uh, some sort of mooring or something and attach it to the seabed, uh, then you definitely need a permit. If you're going to put anything into the water, you need a permit. Um, if you want to fly below 2,000 feet within a mile of shore, you need a permit and the reason we have that one it's called an overflight regulation is because uh there are a couple of wildlife refuges out there that are rookeries for seabirds and haulouts for marine mammals and if you fly, fly too close you flush the the birds right. off the nest and and predators can get them and things like that it's just not good so we try and keep the aircraft up up at a safe level so we don't disturb wildlife
0: when those rules were first made, uh, we didn't have drones and things like that as well. I mean, we, these were more directed to people flying an airplane. Uh, now you got kind of a whole new set of uh,
2: circumstances, if you will, out there. But same rules, same rules, yeah. um, and and a lot of these things, all of these topics: what you can do, what you can't do, what what we want people to do, um, our research programs, our education programs. Um, they're kind of up for review. We, we have this process called management plan review. Our management plan is kind of our guiding document, what we want to do, what we think is important for the next five to ten years. And over the next year and a half to two years, we're going to be revising that. Um, there's going to be a lot of public process. We're going to have public meetings, solicit input from the public, work that into a draft document, and, and go from there.
0: All right, so stay tuned for that. Stand by. I want to get Bill's uh, take on some of this stuff too, but I want to talk with you a bit about uh, expansion here in Port Angeles too, and some things that are kind of in the works and what that's all about. Uh, Bill, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, not only a county commissioner, and this is uh, right off the coast, uh, literally of your your district, but uh, you also were on the on the board of the uh, of the sanctuary too. So maybe describe a bit what the board does, and then and then maybe just your take on on the National Marine Sanctuary and just its impact locally
3: you know the the board really does try to manage through consensus and that was the first board you know um, that I've sat with that wouldn't take a position until there was consensus and I agree with that process the uh, we were just talking about the research vehicle that uh, that the marine sanctuary just acquired that one was an issue for us for two or three years Another thing that I appreciate is a kiosk that we um, have at the Forks Chamber of Commerce. And uh, really appreciate, you know, we're seeing three, four hundred people a day at that visitor center. So I appreciate our ability to share this additional resource that a lot of people don't know about. And uh, one of the things I hope to support Kevin on is, um, after he finishes his planning process, um, reaching out to uh, especially our youth in the community to share knowledge of this research and especially the
0: science and the research that's going on. You surprised Bill a little bit by what we talked about that people kind of have a misconception of what the sanctuary is. I mean it actually is a quite a, it's a piece of tourist uh, it could be a tourism vehicle in some ways. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're not you know I,
3: I see this in a lot of uh, I sit on a lot of different uh, boards um, in the community and I see a uh, prevalence of let us take what limited funds we have and focus on our core mission and our core activities and the idea of taking money to do education and outreach that's a cautious decision you Mm -hmm. know in in a limited financial situation i'd like to support very much the work to reach out beginning with the kids beginning with our tourists um, because there's a tremendous resource there
0: yeah absolutely and and that leads us i think to some of what might be in the future even beyond this planning as uh, people have followed the news uh, although things can, you know, covid had a, had a way of affecting everything but there are plans in the works of getting a, a perhaps a new headquarters and marrying that up with the feral marine life center and some things and this has been talked about for a long time and it may actually be coming to, together though at some point so let's talk about that and what that means for
2: your your agency absolutely um so the Faro Marine Life Center and Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary, we've, we've worked as partners in, in marine education and stewardship and science for, for two decades. Um, the sanctuary has a visitor center. It's in the wharf building downtown, uh, the Olympic Coast Discovery Center. Obviously, Faro is also on the city pier downtown. We we've came to the conclusion a while ago that there was a, a mutually beneficial approach to joining forces. And so we are working currently and have been for, for quite a few years on what we're calling a Marine Discovery Center. Um, the, the city has invested millions of dollars revitalizing the, the downtown area, the waterfront and the lot where the field hall is, um, the field arts and events hall, mm-hmm. um, has room for basically two more buildings that, that are planned overall. And, and the campus itself is going to be really amazing. It's very unique in that it's going to cover arts, culture, and science. So we have the, the field arts and events hall. Uh, the lower Elwa tribe has expressed an interest in putting basically a contemporary longhouse down there that would uh, be able to, to show uh, tribal cultural Artifacts, ideas, concepts, but also a, a performance hall yeah, for them—an event
0: center, if you will.
2: To Absolutely, that. yeah. Uh, and then right next to that, we would like—we're going to put a marine discovery center. Um, this is this—it's kind of a game changer, we think, for Port Angeles. It will increase the education capacity for for both organizations. Um, we think it has a, a real promise to drive regional economic development and tourism uh you know will give give tourists one more place to stop and and check out port angeles um and it, and it's going to provide updated exhibitry for pharaoh for us all together um if if any of your listeners are interested in in supporting this effort uh please reach out to melissa williams at the pharaoh marine life center um if I have a second, you, you do. Yeah, uh, a couple of things that uh, so uh, Bill mentioned. You know, finding the money for education and outreach is not always uh, at the top of the list. All national marine sanctuaries have research, have resource protection, and they have education and outreach. Those are, that's kind of the three pronged attack that sanctuaries takes to 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 meet its mission. Um, we're also, uh, going to be representing the sanctuary at the superhero music festival in ocean shores, August 5th to 7th, Uh, a lot of family fun activities. We're going to dress up like, uh, ocean superheroes, if you will. Um, if, if weather permits, we'll have a life-size humpback whale that you inflate and walk in. It's it's (laughs) a pretty pretty crazy crazy. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's extremely, um, effective educational tool it really is and probably
0: you know a good thing it goes back to some of the what we just talked about is finding better better ways or more ways if you will for people to understand what the sanctuary is a lot of people know hear about it they don't know about it
2: yeah and and we're we're working to do that um constantly and consistently uh i i think a lot of new and innovative ideas are going to come out of this management plan review process how we want to move forward so that we get the word out, so that we get more people out there and and enjoy the, the amazing natural beauty of Washington's outer coast.
0: That was Kevin Grant, who's the superintendent for the Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary. This
2: is the Todd Ortloff Show
3: on News Radio KONP.